I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I kind of wish I hadn't made an announcement at the very beginning of the year that we'd be studying James because that kind of got pushed to the side for a little while, understandably. And yet, uh, I've really appreciated the kinds of uh, topics and scriptures that we've been able to preach and cover toward the beginning of this year. And Lord willing, we'll get to James really, really soon. I'm not going to say next week, although that's my goal, but we'll have to find out what the Lord brings this week. Let's look at this psalm together this morning under the title, The Immediate Presence of God. I think you'll see that in here as we read Psalm 46. It's, it's, it's titled to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. And the song runs, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I want to express again my appreciation for your prayers for me over the past few weeks as I went through sort of this minor ordeal uh, with my heart. Now, I say minor ordeal on purpose because in the context of what I know many of you have gone through medically, heart surgery, cancer treatment, serious injuries, my situation is embarrassingly not worth mentioning when I get among some other people whom God has graciously brought through many other things. So at the least, it gave me a fresh appreciation and an empathy for what it means to be a hospital patient. I would far rather be on the giving end than the receiving end of, of such treatment. But still, I was really nervous about it because um, I don't like needles. Uh, I don't like what they will find when they start probing into my heart. And the cardiologist gives you this explanation, you know, if, you find, if they find a situation they can't stent, they will have to move you to surgery. And then in rare instances, the heart cath can cause heart attack or worse. And, and then the nurse went to put a port uh, in the back of each of my hands. And she was like, now these needles are a little longer than the ones that they use when you give blood. And, and so I'm like, well, 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 can you numb the area first? And she was like, well, we don't do that kind of thing. And she probably thought I was being a big baby. And, and uh, so, so Rena, Rena wasn't in the room for this part. So when the nurse was done putting the ports in the back of the hand, I texted her a picture of the back of my hands with the ports in. And I'm like, look what they did to my hands. It's a cheap way to evoke sympathy, you know, from your wife. <laughs> but she texted back, I've had five children. 
So I was like, okay, you win. It reminded me of Job 44. Behold, I put my hand over my mouth. But before I knew it, these two nurses were wheeling me down the hall into the surgery room. And, and I'll tell you, that was unnerving for me. You've, some of you have had that experience. I was like, you've, you feel totally helpless. Where are they taking me? Uh, what are they going to do to me? And they're trying to assure me on the way. And one of the nurses, maybe she was an anesthetist, I don't know. She looked like she was 16. Um, she said, you know, we're going to give you something to, to make you feel very sleepy and drowsy. And sometimes people don't go through the whole thing and they don't even remember it. And I'm like, that's fine. Put me out. I mean, if I lose the next two hours of my life, I'm fine with that. So after they got me on the table and they did a bunch of prep and the cardiologist came in, she, she said, okay, I'm going to start the medication. But after about 30 seconds, I began to panic because I didn't feel drowsy. I mean, I was wide awake. And I was like, oh no, this isn't working. This is going to hurt. Maybe I need a higher dose. So I said, when is this supposed to make me feel sleepy? And she didn't seem concerned at all. She laughed at me and she said, oh, just a couple of minutes, it'll be fine. But when the whole thing was over, she told me that what I had actually said was, when is this supposed to make me feel schlousy? <laughs> so she knew I was going to be okay. But many of you have been in those situations. I mean, you're lying there in the hospital gown. They cover you with a large paper cloth. You're pretty much, pretty much pinned down, and you feel so vulnerable, helpless to do anything about what's about to happen to you. And, you know, it parallels a lot of situations that we get into in life where we feel pinned down, suffocated, like there's no way out, a surprise financial burden, a significant mistake that we made that causes problems with other people, a job loss, marriage crisis, bad news from the doctor, whatever it is. I'm describing a situation in which you come to the end of your strength and all of your planning and all of your ingenuity doesn't matter. You have no answers. And I think you might, some of you know what that desperation feels like. But here's what it is. It's actually an opportunity to take a huge step of uh, faith forward in your walk with the Lord because part of coming to spiritual maturity is having the conviction that we must constantly hold on to and put our faith in someone outside of ourselves, that we must rely on the Lord that the God who saved us is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. And I wonder this morning if this is how we perceive God to be like. Remember what A.W. Tozer said. I've shared this with you before. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. What we think about God determines how we worship. For this reason, Tozer says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself and the most portentous fact, which, which means what we can see in the future about how somebody's going to live and go and what their direction is going to be in life. The most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What is your mental image of God? 
what do you imagine him to be like? Some imagine him to be a punishing father who wants to teach us a lesson we'll never forget. Some a distant father who you hope will send help from afar to meet your need. Some a distracted father who may be kind and good, but maybe he's forgotten about you. He's got other things to do. Or do you imagine him to be a present father who holds you right now in his strong and loving embrace? As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This is a picture of a father walking through the wilderness with his children, guiding and protecting their paths. It's one of the most profound images of God in Scripture, that he is with us. I think a lot of you are familiar with Psalm 139, which talks about God's presence. That's the psalm where it says, where shall I go from your spirit and where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And we, we've probably all heard and read those metaphors in Psalm 139, but I wonder if we imagine ourselves ascending all the way up to heaven and we find God there or descending all the way to Sheol and finding God there, or even going on a journey far away to the uttermost regions we can dream of, and guess what? God is there too. But that's not exactly what the psalmist, David here, means. The psalm is not saying that we can go anywhere, and when we show up, we find God there. The psalm is saying that there's nowhere we can ever go to get away from God. Wherever we might travel, even to impossible places, God is with us all along the way. He's always there, leading us, holding us. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God, David says. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Even if we wanted to hide from God, we couldn't. God is still right there, knowing us inside and out. And that is not a threat to his children. That's not a warning. That's our only hope, right? It's a blessing that God will not leave us, that our Savior will never forsake us, that he's always there for us. And we need to be sure that this is what we perceive God to be like. Psalm 46 proclaims to us the immediate constant presence of God with those whom he loves. And we see this emphasis, I think, in the chorus or the refrain of the psalm, for one. Did you notice that, it, that there's a chorus there, a refrain? It repeats. And, and, and when, you, when you see this in a psalm, which you'll see it often as you read the psalms, when you see a, a chorus or refrain that repeats, oftentimes it bears out the main point of the psalm. So the main point here is in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob as our fortress. We come to understand the profound reality of the faithful, immediate presence of our Heavenly Father. It encourages us to respond to Him in a way that shapes our perception about Him, our, our understanding of what God is like. And it encourages a right relationship with Him. 
In fact, there are at least three ways I'm going to tell you this morning that a conviction that God is continually with us encourages a right relationship with God. And I think we see each of these three if we follow the contours of the psalm. The first is that we have hope in God. It strengthens our hope in God. A conviction that God is continually with us strengthens our hope in God. That's not a chance kind of hope. It's not, it's, it's not if, if, this, if this works out, this is what I'm clinging to. This is a confidence. It's an assurance. The Lord of hosts is with us. And we can see this clearly in the first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 3. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You see that? He's a very present help. He's not just very helpful. He isn't a God who rushes to our aid from some distance. He is a present help. He's right with us all the time. Therefore, he says, we will not fear. What will we not fear? Notice, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Do you know what we have here? This is Genesis 1 in reverse. It's the undoing of the created order. When God created the world, the earth was without form and void. That's what Genesis 1-2 says, right? Only darkness and water everywhere. And God divided the waters on day two, and on day three, he causes the dry land to appear. But in verses two and three, the earth gives way in the psalm. And the dry land, even the tall mountains, tremble and sink back into the sea. And the earth returns to a state of primordial formlessness. And of course, he's using by, by, uh, hyperbole, but you know what he's saying here? He's saying, even if your whole world falls apart, even if everything that once seemed solid underneath of you gave way, that relationship you thought was secure that you were counting on into the future, the stability of your family, the health or safety that you or your spouse or children could always count on, your job or ministry that you thought you had control over, your ability to do well in school and prepare for a promising future, whatever it is, the ground starts to shake and give way and what you counted on crumbles and there's nothing you can do about it. And suddenly your life is filled with uncertainty and, and hurt and worry and panic. I've never been in an earthquake personally, but I've watched video footage that they captured because they would have cams here and there of an earthquake and the people in them. And I've listened to interviews of those who have lived through earthquakes. And there's usually, they say, this huge jolt. And then everything starts to shake. And there doesn't feel like there's anything stable to grab onto. I mean, everything is shaking. And very soon, this feeling of helplessness turns to panic as furniture begins to fall and uh, shelves begin to empty out and foundations of buildings start to crack. What do you do when there is nothing near you to hold on to that is not itself giving away? We can't be certain what exactly the psalmist is referring to in his situation, but there's reason to believe that the historical backdrop to this psalm is the invading Assyrian army. 
We can read about that in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm thinking of Isaiah 36 and 37. We have the situation was recorded there. Sennacherib's army had laid siege to Jerusalem and they were trying to starve them into surrender. It would mean the overthrow of the nation of Judah, death for thousands of people. And in Isaiah 6, Hezekiah receives a scroll from the king of Assyria and it basically says, don't think your God is going to save Jerusalem. And then the Assyrian king lists all of the nations and kings he's already destroyed and their cities. For Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, the earth may have well have, have given away and the mountains Jerusalem was built on was, were, were sinking into the sea. But Hezekiah went to the temple and, and Isaiah 36 says, he spread out the scroll in front of the Lord. He showed God the scroll. And he cried out and his first words in his prayer were to the Lord of hosts. When what was solid was giving away, he grabbed onto the only support he had, and that was the God of heaven, the Lord of hosts. He was able to say, like the psalmist, we will not fear because God is with us. And the way Isaiah writes that story, God rescued Jerusalem because of Hezekiah's faith and his prayer and grabbing onto the Lord of hosts. Our Lord, our Lord knows what we're going through. He observes and he's powerful enough to change any situation. He's also powerful enough to give us courage to go through any situation. So with the conviction that he's present with us, when the foundation gives way and we reach out to steady ourselves by holding on to our God, we find out he's already holding on to us. I will fear no evil for you are with me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. Our conviction that God is with us strengthens our hope, our resolve, our confidence in God. But there's a second way that our conviction that God is continually with us encourages a right relationship with God. It increases our joy in God our joy. I mean, when everything is falling away and the bottom is dropping out, we can imagine feeling hopeful in the presence of God and grabbing onto him. But can we imagine feeling joyful when we grab onto him in this circumstance? Yet this is exactly what the psalm says, starting in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. Of course, the city of God is Jerusalem. The holy habitation of the Most High refers to the Temple Mount where the glory of God was manifested. But this is where the paradox enters into the psalm. What is the river? The city of Jerusalem had no river. And that was greatly to their disadvantage. I mean, if you're going to build a city, you would want to build it where a really good water source was because you could probably expect your enemy was going to surround you and, and try to starve you, lay, lay siege to the city and block your access to the most important life-giving, sustaining resource, which is water. In fact, in order to prepare for the, the siege of Assyria, Hezekiah gave orders to block all of the springs around the city so that the invading army would have no water. Then he built a tunnel from the Gihon Spring, and the tunnel is still there. You can see it if you go to Jerusalem. And it provided water to the Pool of Siloam. 
through the city of Jerusalem so that the city would have water during an invasion. But the author of the psalm isn't talking about an actual river, and he's not talking about Hezekiah's tunnel. The author, author is saying, there's another river. And it's a significant river because its streams break off from the main flow and they gladden the hearts of the people throughout the city who are refreshed by them. What is this river? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. God was Jerusalem's river. She was her source of help. And he was there with her throughout the city with the people. And because God was there with her, the verse continues, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And that's an interesting expression, when morning dawns. It has the idea, again, of immediacy right away, right at the break of day. This is once again a declaration of the immediate presence of God. At the earliest time, as soon as as he is needed, God doesn't have to come to us. He doesn't have to make a long journey. He's already here. And that should gladden our hearts. It should give us joy. Because God always takes care of every need. Exactly the way we want him to, right? No. (laughs) Because God solves every problem as soon as we realize that the problem. No, that's not why. Because sometimes God meets our need by removing a difficulty right away. Those are usually the ones we hear testimonies of. But at other times, he strengthens our resolve. We go through a period of time where there's something not right. He ministers to our souls. He assures us of his love. He reminds us that he is ultimately going to bring us through this trial to a place of rest. He assures us that he is our God and we belong to him. And all of these blessings are real to us when we know by faith that God is here. He's here. You see, if you're waiting for God to take away the trial so that you can rejoice, then you're waiting, you're waiting for the wrong thing. Yes, we rejoice in God's deliverance. Of course we do, triumphantly. But believers are told to rejoice in the Lord always, to know how to suffer and how to abound. We respond with joy when we see God's deliverance, but we also respond with joy when we remember God's presence. We're like a little child who cries out in the night because it's dark. And he's frightened. He's imagining something sinister lurking in the closet or under the bed. So mom and dad hear the cry and they, they, they come in and they sit on the side of the bed and they give comfort. And you know what? It's still dark in the room. And the child can still imagine something's in the closet perhaps or something's under the bed. But the child is comforted. He's filled with joy because of the presence of the one who is bigger than any darkness or bigger than any monster who is more powerful and understands the fear and who loves him deeply. Is this what you imagine God to be like? If so, it ought to fill you with a deep abiding joy because as the refrain runs in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is uh, the Yahweh Sabaoth. That's the Hebrew. The Lord of hosts. It refers to forces like armies or powers. They could be armies of heaven. They could be powers on earth. God is the Lord of hosts because he commands all of the powers of the earth and the heaven. They are at his disposal. He can do whatever he wants with them. 
always. He has infinite resources to meet any need. That is why verse 6 says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God merely utters his voice and the earth melts. Nothing can stand in the way of God. He is the Lord of hosts. But imagining him only as the Lord of hosts is why we can mistakenly picture him to be a powerful God, but a distant God. Somebody who's transcendent, and we're glad for that if he's on our side. But why would he care about me? Why would he be concerned or even know what I'm going through? That's why it says he's also the God of Jacob. He's the God of a human being. He knew Jacob. He guided Jacob. He was faithful to Jacob. Do you know what God says to Jacob in Genesis 28? We won't take time to turn there. But God says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And he for us is still the God of Jacob. He's not only transcendent, powerful, where we could never imagine his infinity. He's also near us. He's imminent. He comes to meet our need. Psalm 5 says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. Psalm 16 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 21 says, for you make him most glad with the joy of your presence. God is not simply a divine power who controls the universe and governs it according to his holy will. He is at least all of those things. But he is with us personally. He's our God. If you know that this morning, then it should strengthen your hope. It should increase your joy. And there's one other way that our conviction that God is continually with us encourages our relationship with him. It also increases our rest in God. And by that, I mean the quiet peace that passes all understanding. Because he tells us, starting in verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. And if, if, if this is a psalm representing what Jerusalem had gone through with Sennacherib of Assyria, this makes a lot of sense. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And here, the psalmist brings us face to face with the ongoing tireless activity of the Lord of hosts. He didn't just do this once. This is the kind of thing he can do at any time and the kind of thing he does, accomplishing all of these powerful, amazing things that we could never dream of doing on our own. Here is God fighting on behalf of his people. So what part do we play in this astonishing display of the power and majesty of God? God assigns us our role in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean sit still and contemplate and meditate on the word of God. I think this is often used for that. This, this time of quiet meditation. And, and, and yes, I think that applies. And, and we need more of that kind of thing, reading the word, spending much time in prayer before the Lord. But the verb be still is not a verb that means meditation. It really is a verb that means to slacken or to weaken or to droop. 
In some contexts, it is even translated to faint, like Proverbs 24.10, if you recognize this verse. If you faint in the day of adversity, your faith is small. The word faint is the same Hebrew word here that's used to be still. Because here is what happens when you faint. Your body relaxes, you go limp, the tenseness or energy or activity that you were using to accomplish something goes out of your body and you suddenly find yourself doing nothing. And you see where this is going? God desires that when trouble comes, when the earth gives way and what we thought was so sure is now shaken, that we don't do what might seem instinctive to us at first, to panic, <laughs> to, to, to figure things out, to spend time scrambling how to handle burdens, some of which God never intended us, uh, for us to carry. This is the lesson the children of Jacob, better known as the children of Israel, learned the day the Egyptians were chasing them down to destroy them. They were trapped in the wilderness. If you remember the story, the high walls on both sides, the Red Sea in front of them, the advancing Egyptian army in the back. And Exodus 14 says, when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is panic, sheer panic. A typical instinctive reaction of those who do not have a powerful, loving God who is present. But in fact, they did have a powerful, loving God who was present. The Lord was with them. He was there as, as the angel of the Lord. He had been manifesting himself with this pillar of fire and, and, and cloud. God was walking through the wilderness with his people. So Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Fear not, stand firm, or stand still, this can be translated, and be silent. That's the same idea behind Psalm 48, verse 10, when he says, be still. He's actually saying, stand still, relax Stop running around fretting and worrying and doubting and weeping and anguishing and regretting and panicking. Stand still and watch what I am going to do. doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities that God wants us to carry out for ourselves, but it doesn't depend upon us. I am the Lord of hosts, he tells us. I am with you. And the Lord of hosts on that occasion in Exodus 14 did the unthinkable and parted the Red Sea for his weak people and destroyed the Egyptian army while they were still. That's what verse 10 is teaching us. We don't need to fret and worry and be consumed about what's going to happen. We need to settle down and watch what happens when God gets involved. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. 
I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Our God, the God we know personally, is our fortress. His immediate presence is what allows us to rest. We simply follow him in obedience and serve him faithfully and relax and let him take care of our situation and the world around us. He is the Lord of hosts. God's immediate presence is the ground of our hope and our joy and our rest. So I don't know everything you're going through personally right now. I know some things some of you are facing. I don't know what makes you nervous or worried or uncertain or tempted to panic. Besides that, there's a lot going on in the world right now. If you focus your time and attention on it, you could worry yourself to death <laughs> with what's happening. And the, the news, you know, they have to get viewers, so they're going to make things sound as dramatic as possible, right? And there's something more. I mean, sometimes I think we are frightened or intimidated by God's will for our lives. I mean, I was just thinking back. I said this, I think, a little bit earlier. At, at the ways God has already challenged us already at Gateway Baptist Church through the preaching of the word, I know in our Sunday school classes, I might not mention everything that had been said, but at least from the pulpit ministry, we've been challenged about our humility. That's the first lesson we heard this year from, from Caleb Priggy preaching in Matthew 6 or Matthew 5 about committing ourselves to constantly seeking things above, taking our sanctification very seriously. Last week, to be bold in our mission, our responsibility to reach the lost. And we can get overwhelmed sometimes. And sometimes it's like, we don't need another sermon. We need to have time to carry out what we've already been convicted by. We can get overwhelmed when we make the mistake of thinking that all of these spiritual activities we have to do in our own strength. But that's the reason at the end of the Great Commission, the last words in the book of Matthew, Jesus promises, and behold, I am with you. Always. To the end of the age. So be assured this morning of God's immediate, loving, powerful presence. Our loving Father holds us. He really does. He shields us and defends us and matures us and teaches us. And He will never, ever leave us. Take your needs to Him, resting with hope and joy in this refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we...